The following is a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine for a Reformed awakening. To learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org. This particular workshop is about educating children about sexuality, and we want to spend some time in the Word of God uh, taking a look at this particular issue. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help. Dear Father, we are so grateful for this day. We're grateful for all that we've been able to learn from Scripture, especially in a sex-crazed world in which we live. In this particular seminar, Father, we really want to focus in on uh, what do we as Christian parents, um, as Christian teachers, as uh, Christian leaders in the church, what do we need to teach our children? What does Scripture clarify? Where the world seems to be very focused on um, preventing pregnancies or sexually transmitted diseases and external things like this. Father, we realize that your word is more interested in our heart, in the hearts of our children. So I pray that uh, you'll give us clarity in our thinking that would line up with what the word of God teaches and will be effective in turning around and teaching the children as well to follow the word, point them in the direction of Christ, and uh, then, Father, let the Holy Spirit work. So we commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. And some of the previous seminars and uh, workshops, we've talked a little bit about the world in which we live today and how this particular world is different than the world that you and I grew up as parents and as grandparents. Um, it's different because this world is primarily characterized, especially in terms of sexuality, as a, the self-defining self. That's a major cultural change, something like that was something that used to be fixed, but it's not fixed anymore. Um, the whole rise of the modern self basically is saying to children, um, now it's a moral responsibility to be true to yourself, which means to be true to your feelings. In contrast to previous generations where it was a moral responsibility to be true to God or to be true to the way that you were born, in that sense, um, the whole sexual revolution basically said that sex outside of marriage is now something that is normalized in society. You cannot go to any major secular college or university around the country without there just being a preponderance of sexuality that's going on outside of marriage. And, and then you have combined on top of that the fact that there is this social construction of reality which basically says that anything that is hard and fast propositional truth is oppressive, it's um, destructive, it's patriarchal, it's an imposition on people. People should be free to be able to define themselves. There is the culture that children are growing up in now. That's different for us. We, we weren't raised that way or with that culture saying that. Um, so for them, gender is not biologically based. It's not based upon the fact that a person is born a certain way, male or female, and then you follow the way that you were born. No, no, no. Gender is really a socially constructed Ideal. It's something that has come as a result of uh, sociological influence, our background, our heritage, whatever has occurred in our life. And so as a result of that, then it's very, very obvious in this particular area, truth is no longer fixed. Um, and so masculine traits are really cultural influences. That's what our world is saying. That's what society and culture is saying. Now, in the midst of all of this, the timeless truth of Scripture rings as a strong contrast 
A very, very strong contrast. Uh, how indeed do we educate our children in a world that I have just described, and there's much more that could be said about that particular world. And I want you to take your Bible and let's go over to Proverbs chapter 4. And we're going to spend some time into Proverbs 4 and then into Proverbs chapter 5. Um, some of you may have been in the previous workshop that I, um, I did that was in the main sanctuary uh, area. And I talked a little bit about how Proverbs itself, the book that's written, um, Solomon himself being a father, he writes to his sons. And in Proverbs chapter 4, before he goes into a lengthy description in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, about sexuality, um, he introduces those three chapters with uh, this admonition beginning in verse 23, uh, Proverbs 4, 24, 3. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance, uh, vigilance, I should say, for from it flow the springs of life. That's, that's very critical that he makes that particular statement before he enters into Proverbs chapter 5. Because he says, it's out of the heart that we speak. Verse 24, put away crooked speech, devious talk from you. It's out of the heart, verse 25, that cause our eyes to go where they go. It's the heart that directs that. <clears throat> and then verse 26 and 27, it's our heart that takes our feet in a certain direction, uh, takes our body in a certain direction. So the heart determines our speech, it determines our talk, it determines our feet, that is where our body goes. And that now is a prerequisite to everything that he begins to say afterwards. There is a, there is a tendency among many Christians to think that things that are revealed in the Old Testament are only about behavioral issues, but Solomon here is very, very concerned about heart issues. You can see this later on when he gets into talking about sexual issues and sexual problems. You get into chapter 6 and verse 25. He says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. And then chapter 7 and verse 25 let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her past. So at the beginning, before he gets into chapter 5, he's talking about the heart. In the middle of it, he's talking about the heart. And at the end of chapter 7, he's talking about the heart. From the very, very beginning to the very end, he's talking about the heart. And that's critical because that's exactly what we need to be talking about, especially in relationship with our children. And I mentioned during our prayer that the focus of society and culture today is basically giving our children sex education that has to do with biological performance. It has to do with how they perform. Society treats children as nothing more than advanced animals. It's advanced animals going through sexual conduct, and it, the only way you understand what a child's going through is by studying animals and how they handle sexuality, so you, you need to educate the children on how to, what proper sex is, and they're not talking about it being moral or, uh, or immoral for that matter, just talking about the fact that it has to be safe sex or uh, sex that protects from pregnancy or sex that protect, uh, protects from sexually transmitted diseases or those kind of things. That's, when you talk about technique or what goes on, that's all the emphasis in the sex training books, and I certainly have a whole host of them um, there at the college where, we, where I teach. And you can see that, that that seems to be the emphasis. And yet, when you study Scripture carefully, that is not the emphasis at all. Let's talk about it. Solomon will refer to it here, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is an issue about a person's heart. It's really critical. So I want, to, I want you to see this uh, beginning in verses 1 through 6, chapter 5, <clears throat> which 
brings us to the first major point that I want to emphasize, and that is that we need to instruct our children as to the dangers of sexual sin. We have to instruct our children as to the dangers of sexual sin. Take a look at verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path of Sheol, she does not ponder the path of her life, her ways um, ways wander, and she does not know it. So this particular chapter, like other portions in Proverbs, begins with an active parent's exhortation, the son to pay attention and to listen to what his father has to say. For in doing so, he says in verse 4, that's going to give discretion. There is a dynamic there in the listening process. And when you study Proverbs, as many of you probably have, you come up with a repeated admonition. Listen, my son, pay attention to what I have to say. I think Solomon's son had ADD um, uh, because he's just constantly coming back and saying, pay attention to me, look at me, right? Um, Say today, look me in the eye. That's what my mother used to say to me. Look me in the eye, all right? And uh, I watched my own daughters with their children. Say, yes, mommy. (laughs) Say, yes, mommy. Yes, mommy. All right, so they you get some kind of verbal acknowledgement that they are listening to you, okay? It's really important. Well, Solomon's doing the same thing. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion. Your lips may guard knowledge. And that's really critical because listening to the lips of your parents keeps the son from falling prey to the lips of the adulteress, all right? Listening to the lips of your parents help the son from falling to the lips of the adulteress. So I want you to see this one thing here as we get into this passage, that Solomon, having started with this focus upon his son's heart, and then he talks about sexual things, betrays the fact that this temptation can be real, or it can be a product of his own fertile imagination. I want you to understand that. It can be real, or it can be a product of his own fertile imagination. Um, Why do I say that? It's because he's focusing in on the heart. Imaginary lovers can be just as destructive to their lives as real lovers and to their future marriages, for that matter. Imaginary lovers. These imaginary lovers set unrealistic expectations about marriage, about sex, about what their future partner should be like. They lead to covetous acts of sexuality, like masturbation. And yes, that is a sin. Ephesians 5.3 All right, I've heard people say, well, it's not mentioned in the Bible. Well, the term's not mentioned in the Bible, but greed, self-gratifying sexual activity is mentioned, which is a category in which masturbation comes under. Some believe that masturbation is just simply um, the precursor to homosexuality because it is the same sex satisfying the same sex. A person sets themselves up for disaster later on in marriage because their partner is never, ever going to be able to satisfy them the way that they can satisfy themselves. They get immediate biofeedback in that act of masturbation. No future partner is ever going to be able to do that. And so it sets them up for all kinds of discontentment, unhappiness. Later on, if they were to get married... So this becomes a problem. Self-gratifying sexual or greed-oriented sexual activity is out. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, 1 
Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 3, we were created for the purpose, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, we were created for the purpose of not self-fulfillment sexually, but we were created for the purpose of fulfilling our spouse. It's really critical. It, sex now becomes a ministry to my wife, to my husband. That's really important. So I'm not created for the purpose of self-fulfillment, for greed-oriented sexual activity. I'm not created for that. And once I pattern my body to accept that greed-oriented sexual activity, it's incredibly difficult to break. It's as addictive as any kind of drug. And you understand, he makes it very, very clear it promises pleasure. Verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Um, whether this is a real woman, imaginary woman, whatever the case may be, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as any two-edged sword. Or you can put the shoe on the other foot, a forbidden man, either way. It's really interesting. Graduate student do a lot of research on this, and she wrote her graduate thesis on this particular area, and it really has to do with um, women's pornography. And her conclusion after research and after surveying how many churches she surveyed, but there were several, <clears throat> that she concluded that female pornography is far more pervasive in the Church of Jesus Christ than male pornography is. I'm shocked by that. And she demonstrated with her data. She said, male pornography is not accepted in the church. You don't go to a church library and find Playboy. You don't find it. It's not acceptable. Not there. But female pornography is there. It's not in picture form. It's in word form. It's in romance novels. And you'll see church libraries filled with romance novels because those romance novels do the same thing to a woman's mind that the pictures do to a man's mind. It's the same thing. Far more pervasive, far more accepted, imaginary lovers in romance novels being consumed by general Christian women populace, even some that are called Christian romance novels, So, this is not just a male problem. It's a female problem as well. So, helping our sons and our daughters to understand how this is something that promises pleasure, but it rewards with bitterness. It rewards with bitterness. What seems to be attractive at first then becomes bitter and sharp later. Involvement in actual adultery or imaginary adultery is like tasting gall, which was the bitter substance known from a plant when Solomon was writing, or like being cut with a two-edged sword. Um... Some of you guys that shave every day know have those little blades. They have multiple blades on there. And sometimes if you have a little bump on your skin, one, that blade may miss it, but the next one catches it. <laughs> In other words, you're going to, for sure, a two-edged sword, you're going to sure be cut. So the idea here is that adulterous leads that person to death. That's the ultimate end. Being involved in adultery, being involved with someone that is not your husband or not your wife is like, the Bible says, committing suicide. It's like committing suicide. Uh, <clears throat> Go over to chapter 6 just for a moment. I want you to see this. Um. Verse 32, he says, 
He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. In other words, that's suicidal. It's self-destructive. It destroys himself. And as I mentioned in a previous seminar that we did, children have a hard time thinking about long-term consequences. They, all they see is what the immediate will deliver to them. They don't think long-term. Even a lot of adults today don't think in long-term circumstances. A lot of adults still think like children, even though they have full-bodied adults. They don't think about it. All they see is the immediate pleasure, and they want to indulge in the immediate pleasure. They don't think about what this is going to mean long-term to themselves, to the people that they love. They don't think about that. So, in this particular case, this particular sexual sin makes, here in Solomon's chapter 5 of Proverbs, makes the adulteress unaware that her ways are really crooked. And literally, the Hebrew means staggering or unstable. It's the same terminology that's used when somebody is really drunk. It makes them staggering and unstable in their life. That's the way she is. In contrast to very, very straight paths. He talks about back in chapter 4 and verse 11. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. And literally, the Hebrew is, I've led you in paths that are straight. Straight paths. So her ways are very, very crooked, staggering, rather than being straight. So, instructing children as to the dangers of sexual sin. Here we're not so much talking about pregnancy or sexually transmitted diseases. We're not talking about that at all. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a type of sin that is really self-destructive because it sets up patterns in their lives that um, surrender to pleasure to good feelings rather than being obedient to God. I realize that in our culture and society today, being obedient to God is considered to be oppressive. But in the long run, it will destroy their lives. Second thing I want you to see. Uh, In verses 7 through 14, then, of chapter 5, Solomon now talks about um, understanding the consequences of sexual sin. What are the consequences? He says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation, which I believe that utter ruin is probably a reference to the fact that when you committed adultery, that was a capital offense. That meant... You needed to be stoned. I am an utter ruin. Boy, can you imagine that if we implemented that kind of a law in the United States today? (laughs) That would clean up a lot of people's acts, wouldn't it? Capital offense, if you commit adultery. Think there'd be a lot more faithfulness to marriage? Yeah, absolutely. See how seriously that would be taken. Your vows before God. So be sure your children understand the second thing, the consequences of sexual sin. Um, young people don't think in terms of consequences, whatever their raging hormones are telling them to do. That's really what they want to do. They need to understand in verses 7 and 8 the importance of physical proximity. Not putting their bodies, because their heart's directing where their feet's going to take the body. We already saw that back in chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. Their, their heart directing where their feet's going to take their body, so not coming 
into any kind of fixed physical proximity with any kind of sin like this. Solomon, in verses 7 and 8, urges his sons to listen and to adhere to what he says. He urged him not to turn from his teaching, but to turn from the adulteress. Don't even go near her house because of the dangerous are coming to her temptations. All of that is really critical. That, that is the importance of understanding, I don't even go around there. I don't even go near there. It's really critical. Some of you know I have um, twin sons. They're 29 years of age. They're identical twins. It's been a joy in those two guys. It's been a challenge. When they became 13 years of age and um, they, up to that particular point, females didn't exist. All right, then they started to notice that females existed. All right, I said, this is a good time to do what Solomon does with his sons, especially in Proverbs chapter 7. And so I loaded them in the car and took them down to the red light district of town. I said, you see those ladies over there? Real short skirts, leather. You know what they want? Yeah. They want sex. No, not what they want. Uh, what? I said money. They want money. That's why they're selling themselves. They're drug addicts. Drug addicts. That's what they want. They want the money. Um, and that produced a real long conversation about the dangers of sexual sin. Same thing did we, my wife and I did with the daughters. Daughters came 14, 15 years of age. We were in trouble with them and what they'd wear to school. Well, that goes. They want to hike the skirts up, lower things above, and they noticed that they could get some pretty serious attention when they did those kind of things. They understood that. So I'm going to take them to the mall, send them to the mall, and we're going to sit here for next hour, and we're going to observe men's eyes. We're going to watch men's eyes. The pretty girl goes walking by. There's men behind her, and they're checking her out type of thing. And I say, what's going on there? I ask my daughters, what, what's happening there? She said, well, they, they think that she's pretty. Oh, no. Way, way beyond that. Really? Yeah. It was way, way beyond just pretty. Um, they want to have sex with her. Really? That really had not crossed their mind. Um, they want to use her for their pleasure. That's what they want to do. That's what Solomon does. I mean, look, go over to chapter 7. Uh, verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived... Among the youth, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. There's that violation, that physical proximity in the twilight of the evening and night and darkness. And behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward or boisterous. Her feet do not stay at home. Now she's in the street, now in the market. Corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him, kisses him, and with a bold face says to him, I have had to offer sacrifices. She pretends to be religious. And today I've paid my vows. And so now I come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I found you. I've spread out my couch with coverings, um, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloe, cinnamon. Eat cinnamon. They perfumed with it. <laughs> Come, now, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love for my husband 
is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. She knew he was going to be long, gone for a long time because he took a large amount of money. They didn't have banks in those days, so whatever money you spent, you had to take with you. So the bigger the bag, then the longer he was going to be gone was the idea. Solomon's given us a picture of what's going on here. In a sense, the red light district of town. And this naive young man kind of just wanders there, didn't have very much going on in his life, and in his laziness and apathy gets caught up into this thing, seemingly. But his feet took him there. So they need to understand the importance of physical proximity. And then in verses 9 through 13 now, it's very obvious, going back to chapter 5, now becoming a victim of sexual lust will eventually cost them dearly. You can see this. There's the loss of strength that he refers to, which is probably a reference to losing one's health. Um, there's a loss of long life in verse 9. There's a loss of money. Say, so how does that happen? May have to pay the adulteress or pay off her husband or pay child support or loss of health. The case may be a loss of health that'll cost a lot of money to get better. So falling prey to lust brings remorse when a person recognizes too late. They didn't heed their parents' instructions and it inevitably leads to ruin and disgrace before others. So be sure that your children understand the consequences of sexual sin. Now, let's pick up in verse 15 of chapter 5. He says then, he swings to the positive side. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Oh, back in Solomon's time, um, sex was oftentimes referred to especially in the arid desert-type climate of Israel, was re often referred to as like taking a cold glass of water. It was something that was refreshing. Same thing. Um, and the implication here is that you need to help them understand that God created sex, that it is very good as long as it within the right context and the right orientation. The right context, right orientation. The right context is monogamous marriage. The right orientation is heterosexuality. I mentioned this in one of our other sermons. Sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with. Sexual identity determines who you want to go to bed as. Helping your children understand that is really key. Sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with. Sexual identity determines who you want to go to bed as. Well, here in verse 15 through 18, he clearly identifies that the goal of sexuality is your mate's refreshment. That's really key. All of sexuality is not your personal refreshment. It's your mate's refreshment. Cisterns, wells, springs, streams, fountains. What do they all do? They all contain and control water. I live in Southern California. If we had rain like you had today, we would have major floods because all of those hills around there hardly have any vegetation on them and it comes down the hills into the canyons and they just... In fact, our college is right in a canyon there, Placerita Canyon. And when it really rains, it is just a rushing torrent of water, sweeping cars, everything in the streets away. 
when, when sex, like water, goes over its boundaries outside the cistern, the well, the spring, it is a destructive force. Sex is a good thing within its boundaries. What is that? Monogamous marriage and heterosexuality. That's the boundaries. Sex is a good thing. Solomon says within the boundaries of those things, sex is good. Outside of the boundaries, it becomes a destructive force. Similarly, marital love with one's wife now is pictured as a her to enjoy your cistern. So sexual desires should be controlled and channeled in one's marriage, not wasted, as we saw in verses 7 through 14. Older children need to understand that they were not created with gender distinctiveness for self-pleasure purposes, but to please one's spouse. That's why they were created, to do that. As a person would not get water from his neighbor's cistern because he had his own. So a man should have physical needs met by his own wife, not someone else's. You have to port yourself back in time to ancient Israel when you dug a well and you spent all this time digging this well and got water for your family and for your flocks and so on. That was your well. Anybody that took any water from that well was stealing. And usually... Uh, in the nomadic existence, even to this day, many of the nomads still practice it. You steal from somebody's well that they spent all this time digging and laboring for. You steal their water, you die. You steal their water, you die. And the same thing's true here. The, the implication is you're going to suffer great consequences when you're stealing someone else's water. And notice, then... If the goal of sex is your mate's refreshment, then he's very clear about the fact that the byproduct is your own exhilaration. It's the only time in the Bible it says it's okay for Christians to get drunk. <laughs> Someday I want to preach a sermon like that. All the Bible where it's okay to get drunk. This is the same word to get drunk that's used here um, in verse 19, be intoxicated. There's our word to get drunk. Um, be intoxicated, always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? The obvious, that's taken from somebody else's well. So, verse 19 20, the, the breasts of a man's wife are soft to the touch. They're graceful in appearance like a deer. Therefore, a husband should be captivated by that, uh, by her love, not the affections of an adulteress. So, um, he points out um, the folly of being captivated by an immoral woman and loving someone else's wife. To be intoxicated, captivated by someone who is not your spouse. Children need to understand that. You say, when do you start teaching them that? Uh, part of that is your wisdom as a parent. It seems as time goes on, if children are out, exposed to society, it's getting younger and younger, otherwise society is going to, going to educate them in the wrong way. You need to provide for them information that will protect them as time goes on. And this is a process. This is not something you sit down and one night you just expose them to all of this information at once, but you slowly develop over a period of time, you slowly let out information as they are able to handle it. You see the model of Christ, when the disciples ask who he, who he is and why he came, he says, early in his ministry, he says, it's not for you to know some of these things, at least not yet. I'm going to tell you eventually who I am, but he slowly fed them information as they were able to handle it because he knew that their expectation of him didn't match what, who, who he really was. The information was going to be too shocking. He did it for their benefit. And in a similar way, parents have to make that type of a judgment with their children as well. 
How much information do I give my children? How much, and that is a wisdom issue, you know your children or you should know your children. How much do I give them at this particular point in their life that will help them? So this is really key. Um, now there's a fourth thing that I think is important here. This is verses 21 through 23. Take a look at verse 21. He says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now, there's a fourth thing that I think is really important here, and that is your children need to be taught that sexual sin is incredibly powerful and enslaving. All right? As a biblical counselor, I hate to use the word addiction. It comes from a Latin term, addictere, which really is no hope in it whatsoever. I would rather use biblical terms like they're not addicted, they're enslaved, they're in bondage, because if you're using terms enslavement and bondage, then there's always the possibility of being freed from that slavery. All right, there's always that possibility. So you need to teach them that the sexual sin can be very powerful, it can be very enslaving, A lot of secular counsel, a lot of psychologists want parents to teach their children what they want completely ignores this danger. They want your children to understand the dangers of STDs and AIDS and the danger of pregnancies, but God is more concerned with their soul. Sexual sin begins with deceit. It's shameful. It needs to be hidden. That's the issue of the heart. And he starts off in verse 21 and says, they can hide from man, but they cannot hide from God. They can hide from man, but they cannot hide from God. God sees man's ways, verse 21. Adultery that's committed in secret is known by the Lord. God examines man's conduct. Man cannot escape the scrutinizing gauge of God. Man can't do that. Now, not only that, look at verse 22. He says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Not only can they not hide from God, but yielding to sexual temptation, giving themselves over to it, whether it's real or imaginative, ingrains raw feelings of helplessness. Ingrains raw feelings of helplessness. One of the consequences of this sin is God's curse or judgment on a person's feelings. Sexual sins are very powerful. They're very habituating. And the curse involves helpless feeling of being out of control. That's what he says. These things ensnare him. They're held fast in the cords of his sin. It is that seemingly irresistible urge that is God's misery index on sin. This is what Romans 8, 20 through 23 calls enslavement to corruption. Enslavement to corruption. Sin ensnares, it ties a person down like ropes. You can see that in verse 22. And what's ironic about that is that our culture and society says the opposite. People like to talk about being free sexually. They, the sex is a form of freedom. In, in scripture, sinful sex is a form of, of bondage. It's just the opposite. I went to college, early 1970s. 
Well, that was a long time ago. During the sexual revolution, I remember the campus riots. I remember women running off, burning their bras. This was the sexual revolution. It's now open sex. You can have sex anytime you want. And as a result of all of that promiscuity, during that whole decade in the 1970s, and all of a sudden, in the early 1980s, this issue started to appear that we had never seen before, and nobody knew exactly what it was until somebody named it, and it, eventually it was called Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS. Uh, AIDS is just one example. It's one example of people wanting to be free, that is, to go outside the natural boundaries that God has established, to be able to do what they want. And what this does is it ingrains these hopeless feelings of helplessness, these raw feelings of, I can't say no to this any longer. That's, that's key. I remember back about six, seven years ago, I was counseling a, a couple, and the husband had been unfaithful to his wife on four different occasions. Um, it was amazing that she was still willing to be with him. But she wanted to try to make the marriage work in his unfaithfulness. And there was one point in the counseling where he leaned across, looked at me, and he said, you don't understand. This is just the way I am. That's a discussion ender, isn't it? I knew this couple, and I knew that they had a six-year-old daughter. And I said to him, you want me to believe that you cannot control yourself in this area at all. That's what you want me to believe. He says, well, I can't said, I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're making love to that last woman that you made love to that's not your wife. His wife didn't like this illustration. I said, be patient with me. I want you to imagine that you're doing that and your six-year-old daughter walks in on you. What are you going to do? He said, well, that would happen. I said, well, I'm not arguing whether it would happen or not. I just want to know what you would do. What would you do if that happened? He said, well... I'd cover myself over and cover that other woman over and try to get my daughter out of there as quickly as possible. Oh, so you know that right in the middle of committing sexual sin, you have the capacity to be able to stop and get your daughter out of that room. Now, how are you able to do that? I said, um, well, I don't want my daughter to see me that way. That's right, that's right, that's exactly right. You don't want your daughter to see you that way. So what is that? Well, I'm ashamed of what she would see. Yeah? What does the Bible call that? I don't know. So the Bible calls that fear of man. Fear of man. Well, in this case, fear of a little girl. Fear of man. And this is always true. The fear of man is always stronger than sexual sin. That's always the case. Sometimes I do men's retreats. I know some of you men have problems. You commit masturbation, sexual sin on a regular basis. Why aren't you acting that out right now? Well, it's because all of the people sitting around, fear of man. That's why sexual sin is done shamefully in the dark, in secret, or minimizing the exposure of it, fear of man is always stronger than sexual sin. Now, 
I said to him, listen. And I took him over to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. I, was, I said, I want you to look at that. We need to get to the point now in counseling where an even higher motivation, which is the fear of the Lord, is stronger in your life than the fear of man. That's a higher motivation. If the fear of man can get you to stop what you're doing, then the fear of the Lord should get you to end what you're doing. That was a real turning point in his thinking because he bought into the lie of the flesh and the lie was this. And in fact, look at verse 23. It says, he dies for lack of discipline. That Hebrew term for discipline is the word self-control. New American Standard translates, he will die for lack of instruction, but it's self-control. He dies for lack of self-control. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. What's his folly? His folly is that he believes his feelings over the truth of what God's word says. That's his folly. He believes verse 22 to be true of him more than he believes that he really has self-control. That's what he believes. And the idea is this. No matter what a person thinks, about their, their inability to be able to stop their sexual sin, they can stop. Being undisciplined in one's moral life results in death, such living in foolishness, because it leads one astray from God's standards. The idea here, led astray, is from the same word that really is rendered captivated, so to yield to sec sexual lust is the ultimate form of folly. The ultimate form of folly. Children need to understand that. We do not spend enough time deliberately teaching these things to kids. All right, there's one fifth, one final thing here that I want to highlight. One final thing. Number five here, your child must understand that sexual failure begins in the desires of his or her heart. That sexual failure begins in his or her heart. It doesn't begin in the body, it begins in the heart. You need to, in a sense, teach your children to exegete their own hearts to identify the most important desires that they have. Whatever is that ruling desire now becomes that child's functional God. David's sin with Bathsheba can be traced to repeated compromises that he made in his polygamy long before his sin with her. But that sin was a very significant turning point. No one surrenders to sexual sin whose heart is not already predisposed to No one does it. And we might say this. This is really a critical key to resisting sexual temptation that children need to understand. That is a maintaining a pure heart. Maintaining a pure heart. Now, the idea, the Hebrew idea of lave, heart, is the same as our concept of the thought life of a person. It's the same thing. The heart is the thought life of the person. Maintaining a pure thought life is really the key to this self-discipline. Um, let me give you an illustration of this right out of Scripture. Let's Grab your Bible. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 39. Here's an illustration taken out of the very life of Joseph. Recall this story, I'm sure. Joseph has been made a servant, slave in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is an officer, verse 1 says, a pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. He had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And as a result of that, Joseph was really uh, blessed. He 
God made him into a very successful man in that endeavor. Um, three says, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So he found favor in his master's sight. So Joseph got elevated to a level of the lead servant of the household. Now, historically, this is very significant, especially from archaeological evidence, because in archaeology, we have pretty good evidence that Pharaoh's guards were almost all eunuchs. Why were they eunuchs? Because back in ancient times, beautiful women were spies from other countries. Go in and get close to the guards of Pharaoh, and they sleep with these guards, and then they get all their secrets from it and take back so that the, another king could come and attack their country to get all their secrets about them, about their military, their size, their strengths, their weaknesses, all those things. So Pharaoh, as a way to guard against that, turned his guards into eunuchs. They had no sexual desire. They were completely castrated. But Potiphar was married for social reasons. And if this is the case with Potiphar, then Mrs. Potiphar, the sexually frustrated woman, right? I mean, she has a husband that's absolutely not interested in sexual issues at all. Not interested. It was very common in those days for a woman like that to use their slave boys to satisfy their sexual desires. And Joseph was one of them. So she approaches him. And she doesn't just approach him one time. The Bible's very clear that she does this day after day. Um, take a look at verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was a handsome was handsome in form and in appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said, his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything for me except you because you are his wife. How can... I do this great wickedness and sin, you would think he would say, against my master, that is Potiphar. But he doesn't say, how could I do this great sin and sin against God? He saw this as a sin against God. Verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph. This is not a one-time temptation. Day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And of course, you know the whole story. Some of us would think that if we obeyed God and we kept ourselves pure at that particular point, that God would really bless our life. Look at all the temptation I turned down. From Joseph's point of view, he had every reason from a human perspective to give in to her plans. I mean, after all, if Joseph pleases her, then she'll turn around and say good things to the master about him, and that would only mean more blessing in his life, and he would always think favorably. I mean, from a human perspective, he had every reason to do this, but he chooses not to do it because he saw this as a sin against God. That means that his heart was absolutely pure. You cannot, this is what kids need to understand, you cannot tempt a pure heart. I don't care how handsome the guy is. I don't care how beautiful the woman is. You cannot tempt a pure heart. can't do that. And that becomes key. That becomes key for our kids to understand. I always get a little bit frustrated when I come to an end because there's probably about 12 more things I want to say, but I'm out of time. So anyhow, that's, that's critical. What do we do? How do we educate our children in regards to sexual issues? Well, the main thing I want you to take away from this is you have to help them on a heart level. Have to help them on a heart level. You have to teach them to exegete their own hearts. What's going on? What are the desires that rule their hearts? And that if they maintain a pure heart, 
a pure thought life, a pure mind. There will be no temptation out there in the world that's going to cause them to succumb to it. It's really critical. Well, thank you. This has been a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historic creeds and confessions and who proclaim biblical doctrine in today's church. The Alliance hosts conferences, produces radio and Internet broadcasts, and publishes online and in print. We continue only with your support. To give a financial gift or learn more, call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit alliancenet.org.